0: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Governor Stitt is refusing to renew hunting and fishing compacts for Oklahoma's tribes. In the latest battle between tribal leaders and the governor, the change would increase payments for licenses from $2 a month to $42 or more. Stitt says he believes all Oklahomans should have equal treatment under the law. Tribal leaders say despite being, being a Cherokee citizen, Stitt is failing to recognize the sovereignty of Oklahoma's tribes. Ryan, what are your thoughts on the governor's decisions?
1: I, you know, I think that this is yet a, another example of an unnecessary provocation in the state's relationships with the several tribal tribal governments uh, that uh, you know share uh, geography with the state of Oklahoma. I mean, it's um, w- when you look at the, the state saying, we want everybody to pay their fair share. I mean, if you step back for a moment and you look at what the treaty rights of these uh, tribal nations are, I think that there's a very strong argument that these tribes uh, don't have to pay the state anything. And and, it, and that's precisely what they're doing right now. They say, if you won't come to the table with us in a cooperative manner, uh, we'll exercise our treaty rights. Uh, the citizens of our tribes and nations are not going to have to you know, tag uh, uh, wildlife that they, that they kill. They're not going to have to buy the permits in the, at the outset, and the state's going to lose a tremendous amount of reven- revenue. You know, I, this is, you know, these hunting and fishing compacts are really an example of the way that the state and tribes can cooperate. I mean, this ar- arrangement was mutually beneficial to the state. It provided hundreds of thousands, uh, if not more, uh, in funding for the state. It helped the state leverage greater federal dollars coming in, as a result of the increased number of uh, wildlife and uh, fishing permits that were issued by the state. Um, and so everybody benefited from, benefited from that. It was an investment by the tribes, the state, and the federal government. And now it comes to an end. And I don't really, you know, I think that it's it's really uh, surprising. Folks are kind of left shaking their head as to why are we walking away from this mutually beneficial uh, agreement, this cooperation between tribal governments and the state. And I think that it just really comes down to, uh, the governor's preference of, of, re- of rather than sitting down with the tribes and coming up with agreements like he did to extend it a year ago, um, it's to draw a line in the sand and say no more.
0: And Neva, the, uh, this compact actually originated, was celebrated under Stit's predecessor, Governor Mary Fallon.
2: Absolutely. And and as Ryan said, I mean, this, is, this has been an instance where Uh, There has been cooperation. There's been agreement. It's been mutually uh, satisfactory in terms of what's been negotiated in the past. And, you know, as Ryan said, a year ago, we had the same issue arise and the governor agreed to extend uh, the Cherokee and Choctaw hunting compacts for one year. And then, you know, and then the tribes learned from the lieutenant governor just less than a month ago, um, end of November, that, that in fact, this was what was going to take place. So, you know, and I think it's part of a bigger picture. Uh, clearly, the governor, um, it, it, many are, are saying that the governor and is having uh, meetings with agency heads and that cabinet secretary over that particular agency and talking about what other uh, agreements. What other uh, uh, contractual agreements are out there between the the uh, the tribes and the state? And it would appear that the governor is going to uh, continue to just uh, move down this road of uh, of being very assertive on wanting to uh, uh, disband these uh, these these contracts, these agreements, not to continue to enter into them. And uh, it certainly paints an interesting backdrop as we go into the. Uh, 22 election cycle, um, you know, in full force after the, after the holidays. So I, I I think when we when we look at this, I mean, uh, the average person doesn't pay much attention. Certainly, I mean, tribal um, uh, folks that that uh, take advantage of these uh, of these uh, licenses, certainly do. But even in terms of the negotiation of the number of licenses, the 50,000 to one tribe, 150,000 to the other tribe, they didn't use anywhere near those uh, that number of hunting licenses that they had been allocated. So again, I mean, uh, this'll be something that no doubt will spill over into conversations when the legislature reconvenes, but it is part of this ongoing um, a conflict between the the governor and and the tribes that uh, really began back in 2019 when he sought to renegotiate the gaming compacts and from from that point forward we just see more issues arising just like with these uh, tribal hunting and fishing licenses.
0: The U.S. Supreme Court sets a date to hear Oklahoma's arguments against its McGirt ruling for the from the summer of 2020. The state has more than 40 petitions for the justices when they take up the case of a Tulsa man who appealed his 2017 conviction against a member of a I guess a, a member of a federally recognized tribe, the state wants the high court to vacate its ruling to give ju- tribes jurisdiction within their boundaries or rule the state has concurrent jurisdiction in cases involving non-native suspects. Neva, how do you think the high court will rule on this?
2: Well, I don't think we know yet. I mean, the court will come back in and in January. On January 7th, they'll begin to determine uh, out of the Seven or 8,000 petitions that they typically get each term. They'll narrow that down for uh, granting. Uh, a hearing or oral arguments for about eighty of those is typically the number I think that we hear, and it it will it will be interesting to see whether one of those is in fact uh, this particular case. I mean, uh, Oklahoma, the, the governor, the attorney general, making you know making a forceful case uh, their their assertion that this is critical that it be uh, that it be resolved. Uh, when you read the expert uh, the experts that have been out there in federal Indian law. And what they suggest, they certainly don't expect, uh, the ones at least that I have uh, read in recent accounts, they don't expect the ruling to be overturned uh, from what the court did just a year ago, the high court. But um, the dynamic of the court has also changed. I mean, at that point, it was a 5-4 majority opinion. uh, And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in that uh, five vote. And now you have uh, Amy Coney uh, Barrett as the new justice. Uh, So I think that uh, there have been many backers of the state's case that kind of pointed this change in the court and suggest that this may uh, be a kind of an open, kind of an open door for a possible avenue to reversal. We'll wait and see.
0: Ryan.
1: And I know that there are far more serious issues at hand with this, with this lawsuit and with the several lawsuits that the state has, uh, has lodged in their attempt to overturn McGirt. But, and, and I'll get there, I promise, but I, I just want to note as I was reading through uh, the state's pleadings uh, that they filed with the Supreme Court on this, you know, it's the attorney general's office, they've got you know, one law firm here in Oklahoma City that they've outsourced to, stuff to, but it also looks like they've hired these law firms in New York City and Washington DC. And I just was no disrespect to my colleagues in the bigger cities, some of whom, you know, listen to this program through podcasts, Uh, notice respect to them and their their fancy law degrees and their tall buildings Um, but you know I'm just and I know I'm just a a simple country lawyer from Seminole Oklahoma but our state has some of the most storied lawyers uh, in our nation's history past and present and I just just are you telling me that we can't at least spend that money uh, on Oklahoma lawyers I know nobody likes to pay lawyers at all but can't we just spend it on Oklahoma lawyers that's uh, I'm using my privilege here to put an honest question in the complaint box uh, of why are we hiring uh, these lawyers in DC and in New York City uh, to do the state's work um, you know so on the merits I think that it's extraordinarily unlikely uh, that the court even grants this for oral argument what's going to happen um, when they come back in on January 7th what Oklahoma's work Oklahoma's case right now is that it's been assigned to conference you know what that means is that Everybody, all the justices and their clerks uh, and their staff will get copies of all the pleadings. The case will be given to them. It will be eligible for discussion in these conferences. I mean, these conferences are are secret. Uh, we don't really know uh, exactly what happens in these conferences or, or how those conversations always go. Um, and there's a, I think, a really good chance that they don't even talk about this case. Um, I the the court seems, you know, I think more telling than the fact that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is no longer on the court, is there does seem to be a, a number, there do seem to be a number of justices that have a common thread across ideology about maintaining the integrity of the court, um, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts in particular. Um, and I think that part of the credibility of the court is the principle of stare decisis. And if you're going to overturn something, I mean, we see this effort to overturn Roe v. Wade, we're four, day, four decades into that. Um, do do we really think that the court is going to do an about face on such an important critical issue that they were emphatic about uh, in the majority opinion um, uh, written by Justice Gorsuch? Do we really think that they're going to about face on that? I don't think so in an opinion, and I seriously have my doubts as to whether or not this even is, you know, mentioned out loud in that conference.
2: You know, I, I think it's interesting kind of as a sidebar to this whole conversation about McGirt, what also seems to be really uh, gaining traction or at least conversation is the potential to expand the federal court as a result of, uh, of just the exploding caseload and all that's gone on uh, in the past year since uh, since McGirt. But we have a request before Congress right now uh, that came out of the federal judiciary policy. Uh, arm that basically wants to create three new judgeships in the Eastern District and two new judgeships in the uh, Tulsa-based Northern District of Oklahoma. So it'll be interesting to see when we t- when we talk about a state our size and expanding the um, expanding the bench at that level uh, with these additional with these uh, with these additional positions. Whether or not uh, Congress chooses to authorize those remains to be seen. But again, it's part of this un un, un- kind of un raveling (laughs) of the McGirt uh, question and all of the uh, attended and unattended consequences that go along with it.
0: An Oklahoma lawmaker wants to ban schools from teaching curriculum on the Black American experience. The measure from Roland Republican Representative Jim Olson punishes schools for teaching material from the Pulitzer Prize winning 1619 project by the New York Times, among other issues. Ryan, how is this any different than last year's ban on so-called critical race theory?
1: Well, I think that this is night and day. Um, if you read that critical race theory bill from last year, it didn't mention critical race theory at all. Um, and if you read the actual language of that bill, uh, most of those statements are pretty benign statements, if not entirely benign statements. You know, that, that no race is superior to another, or that no one person is superior to another on the basis of their gender um you know my my position on that is that it was you know that the the effect of that isn't really what the effect that critics of it said it was going to be now of course we know the intent of it um you know we see the press releases we can hear the floor debates um and we can we can shake our heads and and be uh angry at that but the difference between that and what we're looking at with with this piece of legislation is that we're moving from a conversation about how to teach history um, and instead you know, look at a uh, conversation of, of denying history. I mean, so I said that, that that last bill, you know, had these very benign concepts uh, in the actual language. If you look at the language here, you know, it says that, um, you know, that they cannot, that schools could not teach that one race is the unique oppressor in the institution of la- uh, of slavery um, or that another race is the unique victim of the institution of slavery. Um, you know, all of those, concept. I mean, I know what he's getting at. I mean, he's trying to say, oh, slavery has existed since time immemorial. It's not unique to America. Um, But it also, to me, brings like a a childish excuse. Uh, You know, if you you catch a toddler doing something, uh, you know, they're going to say, well, wait a second, somebody else already did this. uh, And so it's not that big of a deal. Or somebody else did it worse than me. So it's not that big of a deal. The American experience with slavery is unique. African-Americans in the United States have been the unique victims of slavery um that um you know those those things are just undeniable facts uh and so i think that the the, the you know the the as bad as this legislation is i mean we we're not going to see the end of this um, it's part of this larger context of you know fighting critical race theory um, and that's we're just it, we're, we're here to live with that uh for for the time being until something else until a new fashion comes along And in the meantime, what we'll have is, you know, folks over here saying that racism doesn't exist. And then other folks saying that everything is the the product of white supremacy and um, it will drive particular areas of the electorate out to vote uh, or suppress votes. um, And everybody else is just kind of caught in the middle, scratching their head, saying, what in the heck is all of this?
0: Neva?
2: Well, I think what we have is the conversation just like we had in, uh, when the legislature was addressing the bill on crit- critical race theory, and that is there is always going to be a, um, a, a difference of opinion on this subject. And, and I think what we saw in the legislature was an overwhelming support for wanting to, um, to ban the so-called CRT, critical race theory, Um, But the bigger the bigger kind of conversation than this, I still think goes back to individual school boards, individual communities, parents in those communities, and what they want in terms of the education framework for their children, and I think uh, if we look at the at the history in our state. We have not had issues with uh, uh, people really having great disagreement or consternation about how history was being taught uh, to children in Oklahoma, and so I think this is again one of these issues. Uh, this measure that uh, that uh, that's being uh, pre-filed is similar to ones that have been that were introduced in uh, some other states uh, last year: Arkansas, Mississippi, Iowa, others. I don't believe any of those uh, were successful. Uh, in, through the legislature, we've seen it even in the at the federal level. Uh, Senator uh, Tom Cotton from Arkansas introduced legislation uh, similar to this. Uh, it failed back in 2020. So again, it's part of a conversation. But as far as really seeing a a need to to do something in terms of shifting a curriculum. Uh, That uh, that comes from this uh, New York Times curriculum that was created um, and move that into the Oklahoma school system uh, and see that as something viable. I I don't think we're going to get any traction on that. I don't think there's any appetite for it. I certainly don't think uh, that we see any uproar about it. And there's a reason. So um, it'll it'll continue to be a conversation because it's it scores political points on both sides. But the bigger picture is I think parents have determined what they feel about this and are moving, moving on.
0: The founders of Epic are suing their former virtual charter school. Epic Youth Services, owned by Ben Harris and David Cheney, are, su- is suing the for $7 million it says the school owes for work done when the two entities split earlier this year. Neva, what are your thoughts on the legal action here?
2: Well it's going to be interesting because it's pretty clear that uh, they that basically you've got the uh, the the school saying bring it on. I mean uh, we'll go to court, we'll have discovery, we'll, uh, uh, we'll we'll take we'll have our day in court and uh, we feel very comfortable with our position seems to be where they're coming from, and you know, when you when you look at this uh, this claim uh, by these two uh, founders of of Epic, who no longer are involved, but now say that they had a mutual agreement uh, that. Uh, uh, said that they would be provided re- for reasonable assistance in the data migration they would they would uh, be paid they're saying they submitted invoices uh, they have not been paid something approaching uh, seven million dollars I think the school's pushing back and saying you know basically, um, show us show us invoices show us something to justify this because we don't believe uh, we don't believe we owe you that so again everyone gets their day in court potentially coming up and um, it's it, it's part of this ongoing uh this ongoing b- fight between uh the founders and and the the board and the school and it also spills over into the fact that we still have the auditor saying publicly that the um, uh that the criminal investigation into to the financial practices of the uh, both of these co-founders is still ongoing that anyone that says that uh, anything to the contrary is wrong so there's there is a conversation here that's not going to go away anytime soon
1: Ryan yeah I I think that the founders of epic youth services that, that have brought this lawsuit would be wise to listen to one of my favorite philosophers, Kenny Rogers, uh, <laughs> you got to know, uh, when to walk away and when to run. Uh, these guys need to run, uh, cut ties, be grateful that you aren't, uh, you haven't been indicted yet. Um, you know, because as, as Neva mentioned, the auditors saying, you know, these criminal investigations are ongoing. Um, the last, and you know, and I read through their, their petition online and, uh, you know for, for this breach of contract case and if we didn't have all of the other context around this uh, and and kind of know what we've known about the the failure shortcomings and and uh, um, you know uh, tribulations of of epic up to this point it, w- it reads like a simple breach of contract case you mm-hmm. um, you know you very simple you know there's this agreement these are the terms of the agreement we met our terms of the agreement the other side didn't uh, the contract is breached, and we're owed damages. Um, and they may very well have a pretty cut and dry breach of contract case. The danger is that um, you have a Fifth Amendment right against in- incrimination uh, if, if the government is you know, charging you with, with uh, a crime. Um, you know, that's not as helpful to you uh, when you walk into these depositions. Um, and you've got civil litigants asking for materials and documents and discovery, uh, you don't have Fourth Amendment protections there uh, to protect you from searches and seizures. They don't have to get a warrant. It's got to be relevant to the case. And you sit in those depositions and the, uh, the latitude that, that attorneys have in depositions uh, to get testimonial evidence uh, from a witness uh, is, is just vast. And so, you know, if I'm them, you know, you, you know you're gonna file this, you know that the school's going to fight it uh, tooth and nail. Um, why subject yourself to that? I think that, um, you know, and I think that, you know, maybe you know, $6 million may be enough of an incentive to subject yourself to that. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I would do this if I were them for just $6 million. Um, but, you know, who knows? Whether it's money or ego or pride or whatever it is right now that's driving the decision. I, again, I, I, I say take what you've got right now and run.
0: And in the meantime, Neva, we heard uh, Thursday morning that the State Department of Education, after looking over this audit, uh, they've actually downgraded the money that Epic owes from $11 million down to just $9 million, but still $9 million. Can Epic turn around and go, well, we might owe you $6, $7 million, but we're now having to pay $9 million because of what you did <laughs> for four years.
2: Right. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's this tangled web. They're going to continue to battle. Uh, ultimately, I think it gets to the courtroom. Uh, the question as just as Ryan said, the, the other side of the, uh, of, of the equation is, will this ultimately uh, lead to some sort of indictments or prosecution of individuals, whomever they may be? It remains to be seen because, uh, as the auditor has said, there is still an active ongoing investigation.
0: The head of the Oklahoma National Guard is warning unvaccinated members they could face federal consequences if they don't get COVID-19 vaccines. The open letter from Adjutant General comes as the Secretary of the U.S. Air Force issued a memo saying members could be pulled from, service, from federal service and forfeit any pay and benefits if they don't start getting shots by the end of the year. Ryan, does this put to end the conflict between the governor and the U.S. Armed Forces?
1: I don't think it ends the conflict. Yeah, I do think that it's the right thing to do for the adjutant General to right now say, uh, if you have a if you're a member of the Oklahoma National Guard or Air National Guard, and you have a false you should not have a false sense of security that the governor's position and my position can provide you any sort of protection if our uh, if our um, view of how the immunization law uh, should roll out doesn't isn't approved by a court. If, if courts say that we're wrong, um, you could be in a situation where you lose, uh, your federal pay, uh, federal pensions rank, uh, any number of consequences that could befall an individual soldier. Um, you know, I just looking at all of this, uh, just really, I mean, I think that when we talk about the private sector and vaccine mandates or mask mandates, um, you know, there are, there are different layers there, but the military to me is kind of on its own. I mean, it's the it's the citadel of conformity for a good reason. I mean, soldiers don't get to pick their own uniforms. They're not servers at Chile that get to, like, pick out their own flair. Um, you know, the entire military is organized around this principle that the individual is subservient to the group uh, and that chain of command is your life. I mean, and they train you that way for a reason so that you will run into a hail of gunfire without thinking about yourself, if it means saving your comrade in arms. Um, That's that's why we do this. And so if the whole point here is this idea of personal responsibility and individuality, that seems at odds with the very idea of how our military is run in the the first place. And and frankly, if the adjutant general isn't saying this about other vaccines, then it seems pretty apparent that this is more about COVID politics than it is about personal responsibility. I will say just real quick, some praise for the Adjutant general. He said that he's fully vaccinated and that he has the booster. And I, I read his, his letter, his open letter to the National Guard family, and he said that that's where he's at. And he believes that it'd be safe and effective against COVID-19 based on millions of doses administered. I wish he would go further and encourage uh, the National Guard members in Oklahoma to go get that same vaccine, to go get that same booster, to be ready to protect themselves, their families, their communities, and the nation, if need be, when they're called to duty. Neva?
2: Well, you know, first of all, I I think it's important to note that uh, the the there are approximately ninety percent of the Oklahoma Air National Guard members right. who are vaccinated. So we're talking about ten percent that are hanging in the balance here. And I think uh, I think it was wise, and I and and certainly uh, I applaud the uh, adjutant general for making it very clear uh, to those uh, members and their families exactly what is in play here. That that he cannot give safe harbor to them. That what he said was that you can make your decision, but it could have consequences. And so I think that they have been, uh, they've been given the information. They understand that they could be involuntarily reassigned uh, to the uh, individual ready reserve, which basically are military members that are not paid. uh, If in fact, uh, they, they do not complete or at least initiate the vaccine regimen uh, at, the, at the deadline, which is December 31st, unless something changes. And so things are in place. I think it is, there's no, there, there seems to be nothing gray now. I mean, it's very clear what the, uh, what the United States Air Force Secretary has said, um, it's clear what the adjutant generals communicated to folks here in Oklahoma. Uh, cl- and he's also, as, as Ryan alluded to, he's also said that, you know, don't mistake my vigorous defense of the governor's rights under Title 32 to, to make his assertion, but it could not uh, it ho- has the potential that it won't uh, it won't hold up, and so you have to look at all of the information, make that determination for yourself. And I I think that uh, hopefully in short order this will all be uh, reconciled in terms of, uh, of of deadlines and the procedure, and we'll get past this conversation hopefully once and for all. And I agree with completely with Ryan in the in the instance of our military ensuring that you have a healthy force that is mission-ready is at the core of what the military is all about. So it's a very, uh, in, in, in every sense, it's a very different conversation than just the broader conversation of citizenry at large.
0: Ryan right, and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.